Welcome to the IoT Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, and today we'll be learning more about net neutrality and how it affects businesses and industries. By next month, net neutrality is set to be eliminated. The Obama-era rules were put in place in 2015 to prevent internet service providers from speeding up or slowing down access to specific websites. In December, the FCC ruled to repeal the rules, which would allow ISPs to put specific kinds of web content behind paywalls. The Senate voted Tuesday to save net neutrality, but it must still go through the House and President Trump before the FCC's decision is officially overturned. Joining me today to help better understand the broad scope of net neutrality is Luciano Pesci, an economics professor at the University of Utah and CEO of Emperitas. Luciano, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to learning a little more about net neutrality and how it affects more than just personal devices and personal internet consumption. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. I'm excited to present my economist point of view, which will probably be pretty controversial to, I think, everybody listening, no matter where they sit on this issue. Well, then let's dive right into it. You've set yourself up for, for some interesting content. So let's just get right into it. Net neutrality, I'd say, is a pretty tricky subject that plenty of individuals are already fighting for or against, but I'm interested in knowing a little more about how it affects businesses, business relationships, and industries as a whole. So why don't you go ahead and give us your take? Well, I mean, the first thing is this is a three-year-old problem. So I will say that wherever people sit on this issue, there's way too much emotion that's fueling the dialogue relative to any sort of evidence-based outcome. The rules themselves are only three years old, which means the impact on the economy, which is going to lag any sort of rules that are put in place, I think it's too early to say whether those rules were helping or hurting. And I think it's way too early to say that the change is going to hurt or help. I think we can use theory to guide some of what we expect will happen, but this is a pretty volatile situation. And if you look at the evidence itself, I think there's quite a bit that works against the idea that this is going to be some sort of destructive or it's going to ruin small businesses. It's going to limit competition. Uh, If anything is going to limit the competition, it's going to be the existing structure that allowed us to get here, which is the natural monopoly that has been granted by the government through the FCC to these ISPs and to these companies that provide communication systems. So where was net neutrality at, or the concept of net neutrality before these rules were even put into place? Were were there already rules in place that addressed this kind of thing? Or, uh, you know, what was the situation like before these concepts even were brought to the table? Well, I think it's important to back up and do a quick history of the internet. I mean, you have to understand this is not a market. This is not a normal market in the sense of going to the store and buying any sort of food, or even as a business, buying some service from a vendor. This is very unique because the internet itself came out of a defense project. So DARPA is the organization who really pioneered this technology. In fact, at the University of Utah was one of the first four connections to this system called the ARPANET. And that's the Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is now the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, who funds all kinds of technology and innovation. Google, for example, the two Google founders received National Science Foundation grants that were tied to DARPA projects. This has been something that lived and 
was born, I should say, and lived most of its existence within government control for the purposes of defense. Now, once you connected systems for the purpose of defense and you were using academics to do so, suddenly there was this interest of, well, maybe we could communicate as academics through the system. And so they started to get special permission to use it. And then the businesses came along and said, well, if the academia is using it, the business sector would love to use it. And now today, the main driver of all of this technology is consumers. And so part of the situation, part of what has created the potential for the situation is the fact that this was a government-sponsored, funded initiative that has never really fully moved to the private sector. And that's why I brought up the issue of natural monopoly. So a natural monopoly in economics is one that is granted by the government, which means you can't go compete with Comcast unless you get permission from those who are granting this monopoly, which is the FCC. Well, that limits competition. So most of the problems that people are pointing out that are going to be the result of this change, when they point to this and they say, it's going to be terrible for consumers, especially the individual consumers, and even as small businesses, well, that comes back down to power relationships. Those individuals and small businesses do not have the ability to uh, lobby in the same way. They don't have the ability to even organize in the same way as some of these large companies. That doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily go into a negative outcome. Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they're all still limited by the fact that they do have customers and they do have to still face some market forces, even with this special natural monopoly protection. And I actually believe that the real solution to this problem is we got to open up the competition. This has to be a system that allows more people to come in and compete to drive innovation, which will improve customer experience, reduce price, and increase technology. But I will go on record. This is a good place to do it because it'll be out there in the digital world and I can be held accountable to it. But I will put my name on the fact. <laughs> True. <laughs> I will put my name on the fact that five years from now, on specific measures, and I'll outline what those are, cost, speed, bandwidth, and accessibility, that five years from now, regardless of what happens next month, the internet will be faster, it will be more available, it will be cheaper, and it will allow greater bandwidth. So whatever happens, there's too much in the, in the pace of technology happening right now for it to go the other way. And even in the last three years and even in the five years before that, that has been the pattern of this technology. The internet has become too big to fail. It's, it's something like one in five, between one in five and two in five dollars of everything that's produced in the United States has some direct connection to the internet. Either it's monetized through it, either it's using it as a distribution channel, either it's using it for communication, critical com communication within the system itself. It's too big to continue in this situation where you have a couple key hegemons like Comcast and AT&T, who control it with de facto government sanction. So really what you're saying is the problem that needs to be addressed isn't how do these big companies control the way we access internet, but more so why is it that there are only so many companies controlling access and how do we expand that to more people? Yeah, you Anytime you don't have competition in a system, you get the kind of bad outcomes that people who are concerned about this rule change are pointing to. Bad customer experience, 
uh, borderline fraudulent activity on the part of the business. They're still subject to law. They can't totally defraud you. What they can do is make it very hard to unsubscribe or make it very hard to resolve an issue. But even that, in a world now where you have so much social connectivity and where word of mouth can travel so quickly, they are very, they're acutely aware of their brand reputation, something that wasn't really the case 10 years ago or 20 years ago. AT&T is very concerned, Verizon is very concerned about what people say about them. That is going to put a natural limit on their behavior. And you could make the argument that, well, the system by which we do this communication is digital. That's largely true. I mean, if I go outside and scream at the top of my lungs about how bad Verizon is, best case scenario, someone a mile away from me can hear it. After that, I'm dead to the world. No one can hear me. I get on the internet. I can communicate with people on the other side of the country instantaneously. So yes, if that technology is really choked off completely, then we're going to have some problems actually putting market forces on these natural monopolists. However, I think that they are acutely aware that their brand depends on good word of mouth recommendations, both in person and online. I think that they are out to make money and they can't make money if they destroy the market that supports them, meaning their customers. And I also think that you have to distinguish between the consumer market and the effect that this is going to have for you at your house when you're trying to connect to something versus small businesses who might be using it for communication purposes, but may also have a platform that's built on, and all SaaS companies are a good example of this. They are highly dependent on the internet, but everybody is. Google went down for five minutes in 2013, for only five minutes. Global internet traffic, global, not just the United States. Global internet traffic dropped 40% in those five minutes. It's too big for a natural monopolist to come in and just you know, run this into the ground, which is what people are saying is going to happen. It won't. They're going to still invest in infrastructure. They're still going to have to make it better, faster. Those are the demands of the market. And if they don't respond, they will incentivize other ways of creating communication systems that are outside and beyond the current FCC regulatory system. And in some ways, that's the best thing that has come from this net neutrality debate is people are now starting to pay attention to, well, why does the FCC regulate this to begin with? Why should Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon be the only people who can handle communication? And what you'll find when you dig into natural monopolies, there's always this assumption that's what, that what is being provided is of such a critically important uh, nature, which when you're making the argument of defense communication, that's kind of easy to do. And that if anybody really wanted to jump into the market, the upfront costs, the fixed costs are so high that it would, no one could do it. And if you did, and then there was competition, it's called ruinous competition in economics. You've invested so much money at the beginning that to open it up to com competition, the price goes to zero. It only takes two competitors in a market to drive it to a competitive market price. And that results in what's called ruinous competition. And so for that reason, no one will do that. Now, that's the argument they made with steamboats. That's the argument they made with rail. That's the argument they made with telegraphs. That's the argument that they made with telephones. They made it with the internet. They made it with the mail service. And the history of technology, if you actually step back and look at the history of the United States, and the development of its economy, this is one of the things I teach about, what you will see is that the trajectory of that technology has been 
one of constant improvement. There's always some problems. There's always unintended consequences. But on the whole, the whole market usually adopts that technology. That technology contributes enormously to the positive outcomes of the world. And you can't, as Comcast, stop that. And let me give you an example of a way that this could play out. A lot of small businesses and a lot of even medium-sized businesses, businesses and now even enterprises, they're moving to cloud-based systems. So if I'm a software provider in the 1990s, I am going to, this is the Microsoft model, I'm going to pr physically produce disks that I mail to people, either to a store for them to then buy or directly to their home, and they're going to install that on their systems. That's the on-premise legacy of the 90s and the early 2000s. And one of the things that's transitioned, you've seen Adobe driving this, Qualtrics is a great example, a company here from Utah, Pluralsight who just went IPO today. These are companies who now have a SaaS program that lives somewhere else on the cloud and that rather than the physical software being delivered to you, it's the service that the software fulfills that's delivered to you. Now that's highly efficient for a bunch of reasons. Mostly, it's easier for the organization to control the software. They can push updates, they can A-B test, they can watch their data in ways that they couldn't when it was on-premise. It's easier for the consumer. You don't have to go buy it and install it. You don't have to keep updating it. It's just there when you need it. All that's dependent on the internet. Now, the 800-pound gorilla that is behind this is AWS. And AWS, if you look at the history of AWS, it came to be as a consequence of Amazon's own data science initiatives. They needed so much server space and they were buying it in so much bulk that they could rent out their excess capacity at a rate that was more competitive than having these on-premise models with IT people and servers in-house. And that's turned into a multi-billion dollar initiative for Amazon. Now, is Comcast going to really throttle Amazon? Are they going to play hardball and not do good customer service to Amazon when everybody like Qualtrics and Pluralsight and everybody else is moving their systems to AWS? They, don't, they no longer get to uh, segment the market by individual buyers, which is something called first-degree price discrimination in economics. If you're a monopolist, it means you're a price setter. And by being natural monopolist, it means that they can, to some extent, set their pricing. Well. In the ideal monopolist outcome, you charge every individual customer the maximum willingness to pay. They can't do that when Amazon is now this giant individual buyer. Amazon becomes something called a monopsonist. So that's the flip side of the market. They're the only buyer. And if Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon push Amazon, if they really strong-armed them and tried to get it so that you know, they were abusing that relationship, I have no doubt that Amazon would just create their own communication systems, assuming that the FCC would allow it. And I actually suspect, there's a part of me that suspects that uh, Bezos' rocket company that competes with SpaceX, Blue Origin, I think that might be part of their play, is how do we get communication satellites to space? If you look at one of the things about monopolists is they do these two phases. They start to buy up all their competitors. It's called horizontal integration. So Amazon buys up Barnes & Noble. Amazon buys up Borders. Amazon buys up people who are competing for selling the main products that Amazon sells. Okay? Then you get something called vertical integration. Now Amazon starts to buy up its own supply chain, and that's happening right now. 
And UPS and FedEx, companies who initially were told that the mail was one of those systems that was too big to fail, that only a natural monopolist could do it, and it had to be a government agency to handle it. They came in, they showed that that model was not necessarily true. And now Amazon is saying, you know, we don't even, we don't even need you guys anymore. We're going to deliver it ourselves and we'll do things you won't. Like we'll walk into people's houses and we'll open up their cars and we'll do things that in your model you are not capable of doing. That kind of competition still exists for Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, though, but what they have that other people in the market don't have is government sanctioned monopoly. And so if you really want to fix this problem, it's time to reevaluate the assumption that the communication system couldn't exist in a market. And so it has to be regulated by the FCC because they're clearly not getting it right on their own. So let's say net neutrality doesn't get reinstated, right? It, by the end of the month, uh, the end of next month, it is repealed. How would small businesses or other communication providers enter into this you know, three-way monopoly. I think that what you're going to see are people, it's not going to be the individual low, you know, the single individual consumer getting together from a grassroots effort. I mean, you can call your senators, you can call your congressman. Now's a good time if you're, if you're concerned because the Senate did just vote to, to reverse this. It's got to go to the House now. And then after that, it's got to go to Trump. And I think the chances of that happening, first off, are pretty low on both of those, but you can make your voice heard in that way as an individual. I think where you're going to see this is where the change will actually come from is going to be the, the mid to large size companies who depend on this technology, but it's not their core function. So Apple's a good example. Um, you know, Bangladesh just launched a communication satellite. It's the first satellite in the history of their country. They used SpaceX, right? Another uh, a space exploration company who 20 years ago, again, the assumption was space exploration was so hard and so costly that only the government could do it. And so NASA had a de facto right on that market. Well, SpaceX literally halved the cost of getting a communication satellite to space. So it cost Bangladesh $61 million to launch that satellite in 2016 on, uh, or I'm sorry, using 2016 costs for the Bangladesh launch, it's about a $60 million cost. That's about half what it has been historically. Okay, well, let's just step back and put this in context. Okay, Bangladesh has a GDP, meaning the total sum of everything that they produce, goods and services in their official economy, not counting their unofficial economy, which is stuff that happens off the books, not necessarily illegal, but it happens off their books and it, it is productive activity, but it's not getting captured in that metric. And it's also not including the actual illegal markets, black markets. But its official market is $221 billion. Okay. Apple in 2017 did $229 billion in revenue. Okay. But unlike Bangladesh, Apple produced a profit of $48 billion. So they could launch Almost 200 communication satellites, counting the cost of the satellite itself, it's about $250, $260 million to get a communication satellite built, launched, and in service for 15 years in space. They could, with that cost and the cost of SpaceX, assuming they didn't build their own rockets, they could launch hundreds of communication satellites. Well, right now, there's only about 1,500 active satellites orbiting Earth. 
there's 2,600 that are inactive. So suddenly Apple could have a communication network that's about a fourth of the active satellites, anywhere between a fifth and a fourth of the active satellites up in space. And they could have their own complete private communication network. It would be faster. It'd be more reliable. And suddenly Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T would be scrambling to respond. The only thing that is stopping that is the FCC saying you can't do that. So how do you think a medium to large company like that could either get around the FCC or get permission from the FCC? Because both of those are options. Either you sort of you stick to the system and you get permission from the FCC to create your own ISP or you eliminate them from the equation. How do you see that happening? Either or. Um, well, now we're getting back into the realm of prediction, which gets difficult, but right. Um, I think that it's probably gonna happen on three fronts. I think there's going to be a political and you're seeing this in the Senate. Uh, this was largely symbolic. I don't think that there's any chance that between now and June 11th, the House also passes a similar um, a similar bill, which then has to go into a, co- a conference between the two houses, which then gets a final bill, which requires more votes to go to the president who doesn't veto it. I think that that's probably not going to happen. But what is happening right now is you have seen a tidal shift in the public's perception about this issue way more than I expected. There's been a lot of these. The government's involved in tons of markets. The cost of regulation and compliance has just been going up and up and up. And in fact, if these businesses really wanted, small and medium businesses wanted to focus their attention on something that would have a bigger ROI for them, it would be getting the government to simplify the regulatory procedures and processes. It has just been an exponential growth since the 1970s in total words, in total uh, regulatory agencies, in number of federal employees who are enforcing this, and in the cost to the business community for complying with all of these rules. And I think that if they could roll the internet discussion into that bigger grievance and start to put real pressure, both in this upcoming election cycle and in the one after, then I think that there's a, a that is one of the ways in which we could start to see some change. The second is some of these businesses that are sitting on excessive, uh, that have been excessively dis, uh, I'm sorry, some of these businesses that have been disproportionately affected by the potential of what net neutrality could bring, they need to start to spend some resources lobbying. They need to create organizations at the industry level. They need to start to push on the government and try to attract consumers into that process. And I think that so the business community could lead that push as well. Um, But I think where you're going to see something that probably fundamentally shifts this is what about quantum computing? What about quantum communication? I don't know right now that the FCC's charter allows them to regulate quantum communication, what if suddenly it doesn't have to come down to the infrastructure that was built by DARPA in the 1950s and 60s? What if there is a just a new way of communicating? That's probably the most likely. And so getting individuals who are passionate about this, thinking about new innovative technologies to compete with the idea of the internet, getting businesses to put money into R&D, 
to try to create different systems of communication, that's the one that I would put my money on actually working. The counter argument is, well, that's great. How long till we get there and what happens in between? And I, have, I don't want to paint a picture where I believe the Comcast, Verizon, and AT&T are not going to abuse their monopoly power. They are going to. That's one of the reasons people seek out monopolies, either through government mandate with a natural monopoly or through exceedingly high compliance costs, which means that startups and small businesses just could never actually do it. I think you're seeing that in the health information system right now with HIPAA compliance. Just to be HIPAA compliant or PCI compliant within the financial sector, those are such high barriers to entry, the compliance costs themselves, that it stifles innovation. And yet we've still seen innovation happen in them. We've still seen innovation happen in the mail delivery. We've still seen innovation happen in space exploration. We will see it here as long as people stop wasting their time fighting about it online and go figure out how to make the next technology that makes the internet redundant. Yeah, I think getting the conversation focused on the bigger issues, right? Not focusing on the minutia or the symptoms, but instead trying to tackle, well, what is making these symptoms happen in the first place. I think that's where the conversation needs to start going. So thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and helping conceptualize all those big ideas. You know, net neutrality affects people from all different walks of life in all different kinds of ways, personally, professionally. And it was great to get this other perspective on how it affects businesses and how it affects industries and your personal perspectives on the issue. So thanks again, Luciano. I was happy to spend the time with you today. And thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. Till next time.